0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. My name is Dr. Bill Takesta, and tonight I'll be your host as we interview Dr. David Boyer. Dr. Boyer is a vitriol retinal surgeon who has offices here in Los Angeles, and he has lectured extensively across the world on treatments for retinal disorders. So, welcome to the show, Dr. Boyer. Thank you very much.
1: No, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Yes, you know, right now we have so many people who are becoming low vision, and the one question they always have is, you know, with all these advances in technology, isn't there anything new? Isn't there anything that they could do to help my vision? So I'd like to first begin by asking you, uh, would you first go ahead and just describe for the audience out there, what is the retina? A lot of people have heard of the retina, but they really don't know where it is or what it does, and they have been diagnosed with retinal diseases. So uh, what is the retina in the most simplistic terms?
1: Well, if we use the analogy of a camera, the retina would be equivalent to the film in the camera. Unlike film, it's a living tissue, so it has a blood supply, and it lies inside the ball of the eye. So if you think of the eye as a hollow ball, and you cut a hole in the hollow, hollow ball and looked inside, the black lining that you would see would be where the retina would be. It's tissue paper thin. But actually, is able to take the picture for you. Unlike photographic film, where you would see a clear image all the way around, there are portions of the retina known as the macula or the center part, the fovea, that have the clearest vision for you.
0: And that's one of the things that we really, you know, observe so often that many adults will develop macular degeneration. So the macula is just one region of the retina that gives the clearest vision. And uh, what is macular degeneration?
1: So there are two basic forms of macular degeneration. There's a juvenile form, which is usually hereditary. And there's an adult form, which has, is multifactorial. The adult form falls into two categories. One category is dry macular degeneration, and the other is wet. Dry macular degeneration means that there's no bleeding or leakage or abnormal blood vessels, but the patients begin to develop pigment alterations or drusen and other changes that are associated with aging. And in wet macular degeneration, you have similar changes, but you also develop new blood vessels that will bleed and leak and cause further distortion of vision. Now, most patients will have dry macular degeneration, which can be present for a considerable period of time and not really cause a significant loss of vision. Unfortunately, about 15% of patients will go on to developing wet macular degeneration. Though it's rarer, it has, unfortunately, the ability to cause a loss of vision very quickly if left untreated.
0: Now, with the macular degeneration of either type, the dry or the wet, is it possible to just simply transplant the macular tissue?
1: Well, that's been tried, and, and we continue to try um, to do that. The problem basically is the retina is literally a portion of an extension of the brain, so you almost have to be able to do a brain transplant before you're going to be able to do a retina transplant. Now, there are conditions that are rare where some of the retina can be um, moved over or uh, pieces taken out that may cause an improvement in the patient's uh, vision, but we're not quite at the level at this point where we can actually transplant cells that will um, bring back vision. We can use these cells to liberate substances, cytokines and things that will um, allow us to uh, stop progression perhaps but we're not at the point where we can actually improve vision with transplants.
0: What is the uh, primary treatment that you and other vitro retinal surgeons perform to help the person with dry macular degeneration to either improve their vision? Can you improve their vision or can you slow the progression of the disease down in dry macular degeneration?
1: Well, patients who have dry macular degeneration should be um, placed on vitamins to try to slow down the progression. These vitamins contain lutein, and they've been studied in two major studies, the age-related eye disease study and the age-related eye disease study Two. In both cases, it was found that uh, a combination of vitamins that are antioxidants now associated with some lutein um, will slow down progression of the disease by about 25% and vision loss by about 20%. And this is maintained over you know five years and a 10-year period. So if, um, if you have a certain amount of dry macular degeneration, being placed on vitamins will slow down these changes. Now, as far as improving vision, um, many times uh, patients who have some difficulty in, in reading or uh, reading magazines or books will benefit, as you know, from a Kindle that will give you backlighting and be able to um, Im- improve the print size to make it easier. And also, if you can use lights that coming from behind, that will um, give more light to the, um, to the area you want to see. Those things can enable patients to perform better.
0: Now, what types of vitamins are these? Is this something that uh, uh, buying a multiple vitamin or is it a specific type and brand of vitamin that the, the patient should buy?
1: Well, there are hundreds of, of different types of i vitamins, and there's only one type or one formula that's been tested in 6,000 patients in the first study and 4,000 patients in the second study. And that's the age-related eye disease study 2 vitamins, the AREDS2. And it's a specific formula. Now, if you pick up other brands of vitamins, you'll have some things that are added that may be beneficial, but we really have never tested them. Some people um, will find that Vitamins contain very small amounts of, of many things, so they can be listed on the label and cost a lot of money. But um, they really have never been tested in uh, randomized clinical trials. So the only vitamin that, that I recommend to people um, would be the A-Reds Two vitamin. Um, the formula can be by different companies, but that but that's the formula that I recommend. Now, if the if the other vitamins have something additional in it, I can't tell you that it's detrimental um, because we've really never tested some of these other things.
0: I understand. Now, I have also have had uh, situations in where patients have purchased the A-REDS-2 and they, they had questions that there's two various formulas of it. One is for smokers and the other is for non-smokers. And Can you explain the difference in those vitamins and What's the significance if you smoke or don't smoke?
1: Okay. So the original formula that came out was, was the AREDS formula, A-R-E-D-S, or AREDS formula. And they had a smoker's version, and they had a non-smoker's uh, version. The non-smoker's version was the one that was tested and was found to, uh, used beta carotene. And there were several studies that had been done, one done in Finland and one done in the United States, that showed high-dose beta-carotene increased the risk of metastatic um, lung cancer so that um, it was felt that if anybody was a smoker, they should not take uh, any form of uh, high-dose beta-carotene. Low-dose was never tested, but these are 20,000 units, which is very high so the smokers formula at that time used lutein when they went back and did the second study the AREDS2 study they found that the two were about equal however there was a little bit better safety taking lutein than taking beta carotene so right now the AREDS2 formula only has the beta it has no beta carotene but only has lutein and zeaxanthin in it and a 10-milligram dose of um, lutein, and that's the recommended vitamin at this point. So anybody who is a smoker definitely should be on that. Somebody who never smoked in their life, if you can find the other vitamin, could certainly take it, but I'd still probably recommend lutein. It seems to be a little safer.
0: Now, Dr. Boyer, I have had... A few patients that I recall who, who came to our low vision center, and after taking the vitamin, their visual acuity actually improved. Now, is right. this a common finding, or is this something that's just extremely rare? But
1: their well, vision it had- felt, and there have been a couple of studies that have been done that showed patients who were taking lutein did um, see a slight improvement of their vision uh, on the, lutein rather than uh, those who did not take it. Now, there's also placebo effect. Whenever you take something that you think is going to help you, there's always the fact that you try a little harder. It's, It's not a randomized clinical trial, but there is some evidence, and I've heard this in my patients also, that they seem to feel that they see better after they've taken lutein.
0: Now, what about the wet form of macular degeneration? You stated that blood vessels bleed into that region of the retina. Um, what can be done to help people with the wet form of macular degeneration?
1: Well, the first thing is to make the diagnosis early. We, we are able to stabilize patients very well now with treatments, um, but making the diagnosis is probably the key So some things that you need to remember, if you have wet in one eye, your risk of developing it in the other eye is about 12% per year. So that means after four years, it's almost a 50% risk that you could develop the same problem. So we definitely wanted you on vitamins, but we also want you checking yourself with either some uh, Amsler grid type of device or, or a... Uh, device that goes on your phone so that you can check both your vision and look for any changes, or the 4C home device, which is becoming more popular, that is uh, approved by Medicare that allows you to check yourself in the good eye uh, to see early signs of change. Once you've identified that there is a change in this distortion or you have a spot that you see centrally or you can't read as well as you did, You can't ignore that. You need to be seen by an eye care professional as soon as possible. If we can identify it early and we have ways of, of checking for this, we have what we call optocoherence tomography. Now we have optocoherence tomography angiograms, and we have fluorescein angiograms that can determine whether the patient does have a treatable condition. Um, then intravitreal injections or shots that go into the vitreous cavity through the white portion of your eye are indicated. And though that sounds terrible, it's not a painful procedure at all. And we're able to stabilize vision in a very high percentage of patients. Unfortunately, not everyone can be stabilized, but the natural history is extremely poor. And with treatment, um, we are actually able to stabilize 70% of people with no loss of vision at all or an improvement of vision. Matter of fact, 35 to 40% of patients will get a a significant improvement of vision. And um, they require injections either monthly or on a treat and extend basis where the doctor will treat until the patient's dry and then extend the interval for next injection Um, outwards. So we do have excellent treatments today. Unfortunately, um, they are injections at this moment, and um, we don't have any additional treatments to add to that that may improve um, patients in the future.
0: So the key is really to identify the wet macular degeneration as soon as possible, and I understand the 4C HOME device. Uh, which is, again, covered by Medicare. Can you describe to the audience what is this device? Is this something that is pretty easy for them to test? And is it more accurate than using the the graph paper, Amsler grid-looking device?
1: So I, I, it, it appears to be, um, you know, there was a study that was done that compared... The AMSOR device, or what you would call the standard of care treatment versus the 4C home device versus a standard um, uh, recall visits that were done every four to six months, depending on the patient's uh, doctor. The 4C home device looks like a pair of binoculars that are mounted, and you test one eye at a time. And what you're testing for is a... Uh, hyper type of vision. Um, what it, what that means is if you had two pieces of um, uh, two lines together and you could tell that one line is a little longer than the other line, much easier than you can tell whether the grid is is beginning to, to move or that you're losing letters. So if, to lose a letter, it's about 60 seconds of arc, and with the 4C home device you can pick up between three and six seconds of arc. So it's much more um, able to pick up the earliest changes. So when we looked at the data and presented this, we found that vision loss occurred uh, only three letters before you were able to pick up something on the 4C home device versus a loss of eight letters when you either did it um, looking at an AMSA grid or looking at tile in your house and trying to pick it up. So that was five letters of uh, difference between the two ways of treating. So though it won't pick up everyone, it does pick it up earlier, and the earlier you pick it up, the better chance you have of keeping the vision you have um, and not letting it deteriorate. So um, we're very excited that this is another way of checking. There's Digicide with that has something that fits on an iPhone or an Android device that is um, – Used for nothing and does go to a computer to be able to pick up early changes Uh, again on either an Amser grid or on a small reading device that they have. And um, any way you check yourself, it's just important to check yourself and make sure that that you continue to monitor yourself carefully.
0: And the digit site that is an application that is at the iTunes store that a person could just. Correct,
1: they download that for, for nothing and, and check themselves. I think that they do have to be connected with the doctor because the doctor has to get the results. Um, same with the 4C home device. They need a prescription, and a doctor has to be able to check the results. And when an alert is uh, prompted that they need to come in right away to be checked to make sure there's no problem. Now, there are false positives, and we see patients now that are getting alerts that uh, come in and don't have any signs of disease whatsoever um but i think that you know it's still worthwhile even though it, it does increase the some patients coming in we are able to pick up early changes and be able to treat people and keep their vision for a longer period of time
0: gosh that is fantastic that's really great now what about with people who have diabetes and uh, they develop problems with their retina where there 's bleeding in their retina. Are there any new treatments that you have for people with the diabetic retinopathy?
1: Well, diabetic retinopathy is one of the leading causes of uh, blindness in, in people from thirty to you know fifty five and then we talked about macular generation which is patients that are much older um But we do have many treatments today. The first thing that people have to realize with diabetes is that control of your diabetes, control of your blood pressure, control of your lipids can dramatically influence the formation of diabetic retinopathy. So this is not something that you just have to rely on on your eye doctor to check. This is something that you can be proactive in and actually get an improvement of vision Um, Good control can cause reversal of of changes. Now, uh, prior to, you know, in the last, I guess, five, six years, there's been a very major change in our treatment uh, paradigm for the treatment of diabetic retinopathy. Previously, most of the time we would treat the patients with laser or we would treat with uh, steroids. And now we treat with the same medicines that we use for the treatment of patients with um, macular degeneration. We use medications that are known as anti-VEGF or anti-vascular endothelial growth factor drugs. These are just proteins that basically will um, stop leakage. And they can actually, by giving these drugs, we've been shown to have actually an improvement in the diabetic retinopathy scores. So we can actually reverse without anything else, without laser, we can actually improve the diabetic retinopathy scores, and you can see hemorrhages go away and the blood vessels return back to normal. So by using pharmacotherapy, we are able to get a three-line improvement in about 40% of patients, whereas prior to that it was about 15% with laser would get the three lines of improvement. So we've come a long way. We we have also long-acting steroid implants that can be utilized in some cases because anti-VEGUP unfortunately doesn't work in every case. Um, Diabetes is a very complicated multifactorial disease. It has an inflammatory component and has um, different cytokines that are upregulated so VEGF is one of those cytokines that's upregulated, and, and those patients may do very well with anti-VEGF therapy. Others have uh, what they call ICAMs and other inflammatory markers, and interleukins, and those are very well treated with steroids. So we now have combination of pharmacotherapy to treat our diabetics and get much better visual results.
0: So uh, at this time, then, the laser photocoagulation, is not necessary for many people with diabetic retinopathy. Is that correct?
1: I, th- I don't think that the term unnecessary it would be the term I would use. I would say that we use laser much more sparingly than we did previously. But there's a big debate um, still about the use of laser um, for proliferative diabetic retinopathy. I think most retinal surgeons still feel that eliminating the um, VEGF or the vascular and field growth factors that the eye produces from poor blood supply by using laser is still helpful. Um, But we use combination of therapies so that we would use um, an anti-VEGF injection. In addition, we would use laser treatment to try to stabilize so we don't have to give these injections for long periods of time.
0: That's wonderful. That's so wonderful, because a lot of times we would see a lot of patients that every every time they would go in, they would get the laser treatments, but those laser treatments cause blind spots, don't they?
1: That's correct, and, and the blind spots, unfortunately, can actually grow, so you, you could have a very well-treated patient where treatment was applied definitely appropriately, but five, six, seven, ten years later, those spots have enlarged, And now the patient has these blind spots or these areas where they can't see, um, and it's based upon a growth of these lesions that we really, or a growth of these laser marks, which we really don't know why that occurs.
0: So with diabetic retinopathy, it's very similar to wet macular degeneration, that the sooner that you identify it, the better that we have a chance to help that person to see better. But also, you mentioned that it's, it's very important that the patient really takes care of their diabetes, their blood sugar level, their, their blood pressure, and so on. And can you explain to the uh, audience here, what is the importance of the hemoglobin A1C? We hear this test being performed all the time, and we don't hear as often uh, a regular blood glucose test. Can you explain that?
1: So um, the hemoglobin A1C or glycohemoglobin is a test that averages what you've been for three months. So why why that's important is because you can come in to see me, and I ask you what your blood sugar was in the morning, and you can say it was 110. And I say, that's great, but I don't know what you were at 12 o'clock, and I don't know what you were at 4 o'clock. So this basically gives me an idea of what your average blood sugar has been throughout the course of the past three months. So the best example I can give you is the patient who comes in and says they're in great control. They had a blood sugar of 110 in the morning. But in the evening, they didn't test themselves, and it was 450. And so you really are not in good control in those situations at all. And because of that, the A1C will give me a better idea of how well controlled they are high a1c you know levels are associated with more rapid progression so the better control you have the less chance you have of developing these changes to begin with and it doesn't require a, you know a huge change if you go down 10% from let's say an a1c of 9 to an a1c of 8 which it would not be considered great control you're reducing your chances of developing or having progression by almost 20%. So it continues to be very important that you keep your A1C as good as you possibly can, as good as your doctor wants you to. Older patients, you know, may they may give you some leeway because we don't want people to get too low. Then they become hypoglycemic, which is extremely dangerous, especially if you live alone. So there are a lot of factors that go into... What is a normal or a good A1C hemoglobin? But it's an extremely important test. It gives us a lot more information um, of how your control is and also when we have to bring you back. Because if I see somebody whose A1C, let's say, is 7 or below, I think that patient may do much better than someone who comes in an A1C of 11. I may have to see that patient with 11 much more frequently and earlier than I would someone who's under very good control.
0: And so do you also then recommend a very strict type of diet for your patients who do have diabetes and also recommend that they perform uh, some sort of exercise?
1: Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's extremely important that the patients begin to take control of their problem. Um, you know, I always encourage exercise to anybody, and, and weight loss is extremely important. Um, I've had patients, and, and I think that you, Bill, have seen a number of patients that have had weight loss, significant weight loss, and have become non-diabetic. Uh, type 2 diabetics who um, are severely obese can reduce their weight and sometimes get off most, if not all, their medications. We know that... Um, People who exercise will tend to lose more weight and tend also to push the uh, glucose into their cells so it's not uh, as big a problem. I, and I also point out about the, uh, the high glycemic index foods so that the, there are certain foods that will cause a problem, rice, uh, white bread, uh, potatoes. There are a lot of different foods that are very high um, glycemic index, meaning that when you eat these foods, your blood sugar is more apt to go up. And when you start talking to the patient, they said, oh, yes, when I go out and have Chinese food with a lot of white rice, my blood sugar the next day is terrible. But a lot of people don't realize that, you know, there are certain foods that, you know, will really cause this. Um, so I encourage them to speak to their doctor. Unfortunately, with a lot of cutbacks, they're not good dietitians or dieticians are just hard to get a hold of that can sit down and really plan Um, a diabetic's diet and and try to help them lose weight and try to help them get on the right foods.
0: Yeah, so there's really so much that people with diabetes can do to uh, try to reduce their chances of vision loss. Correct. Uh, Dr. Boyer, another common retinal condition that many people lose their vision due to is uh, retinitis pigmentosa. And this is a more complicated disease, as as you know, because sometimes it's genetic, other times it's not genetic. And as far as the treatment for years, it's been very, very difficult to treat. but uh, there's other other new improvements and some hope with uh, stem cells. is Is that something that's realistic? And can you first explain what is retinitis pigmentosa?
1: So retinitis pigmentosa, as you said, is, is again, it's a a disease that covers a a wide range of of actual problems. It's not one specific disease. You can have um, retinitis pigmentosa associated with hearing loss, which may indicate you have Usher syndrome. You can have it associated with cardiac problems. Um, So basically what happens with retinitis pigmentosa is that the Rods um, are affected usually primarily, um, and what happens is that the rods have to do with your peripheral vision, and you begin to lose your peripheral vision. They also are associated with night vision. So, the first signs of someone with retinitis pigmentosa would be that they would have more difficulty at night in a, in a dark-lit room getting around, or they may be bumping into things because their peripheral vision becomes affected. Um, There are, as you pointed out, there are many genetic causes for this. There are many uh, different uh, problems that contribute or can cause this. So we're lumping everybody together with a diagnosis of retinitis pigmentosa, but the genetics that are causing it are very, very different for each group of, of patients, so, um at this moment in time, there is no cure, but we have a lot of things on the horizon that are very, very exciting. Um, we are now doing uh, we're we're testing a lot of patients to see what the genetics um that have caused this are because we do have the ability in the future um, to use what they call CRISPR Cas nine which is the ability to take a bad gene, splice it, and put in a good gene now. You can hear about gene transfer and, and taking uh, and putting into a patient's body a gene that is um, defective and putting in the, a good gene. But the patients always will have the bad gene present. In this case, they actually splice and take away the bad gene. What that means simply is that if you have this technique done, you can't pass the bad gene on to your offspring because the bad gene has been taken out of your body. It is probably the most exciting work that I've ever seen. I think Time Magazine made it the second person of the year because of the work that's being done. It may take all hereditary diseases and change them, stop the progression, stop the ability to actually um, give these to our children and pass these on to generations. So finding the genes, and we do know that Genome Project has allowed us to find genes and multiple genes that are causing some of these conditions. So we do have stem cells. We have embryonic stem cells that, that are being tried. Um, we're doing uh, some work with that through the University of California in Irvine. Um, those are injections into the eye to try to make cells that normally don't see see. It's called optogenetics. Um, This has become very uh, exciting. It basically says that you can take a patient who has damaged rods throughout their retina, and they may have ganglion cells or astrocytic cells in that area that are still functioning, and those cells usually don't see, but they're able to change the milieu to the point where you're able to make these cells see. So they're hoping to be able to restore some vision in these cases. Um You know it's too early. we're We're still doing the these uh, studies to try to find the the best way of doing it. We have another study where we're putting cells under the retina um, to try to uh, improve this. This was done by um, uh, something uh, a company called um, Advanced Cell Technology. And um, the results so far are encouraging. But they're certainly far from being done. I think the, the best treatment will be the uh, getting the gene spliced and taking out the bad gene and putting in a good gene. And I'm hoping that they'll be able to do that. They can do it in animals right now. And the question can they do it in uh, humans? Then the next would be optogenetics, where you're actually making cells that normally don't see see. And this is an extremely exciting, um, you know, uh, way of treating patients. Huh.
0: That is absolutely amazing. To be able to splice uh, the gene within within the cell like that is absolutely amazing. You? Now, Dr. Boyer, uh, one of the other things that I have read about is the fact that some of the researchers have been able to produce the entire thickness of the retina in a laboratory. And I was wondering uh what is the relevance of being able to do that would that seem to be that you would be able to trans transfer that tissue into the eye
1: well you're you're absolutely correct that's been done in Japan it's actually been done um in uh university of california uh university of california in san diego um and other researchers are also doing it it's, it's extremely exciting. You actually can use these um, 3D uh, printers to help do that. And um, they're able to actually get uh, reproducible um, uh, cells that look uh, like the retina. The problem is going to be hooking them up. You know, you can make the cells, but you've got to hook them back up so they go down the optic nerve. and th- There has been a lot of exciting new um, research that's been done in that regard. You know, recently they were able to actually um, cut the uh, optic nerve of a rat, and they were able to bring the two ends together and and to be able to make the uh, rat see again. Now, this has never been done before, and certainly it's, you know, in a lower animal. It's not in humans. But this is what we're really looking for, the ability to hook up um, and this you hook up these nerve fibers to each other, um, and by changing the milieu around them by changing you know the the different cytokines to be able to show growth. So this is you know, this is all coming towards being able to hook in cells, may be able to grow the cells, be able to put them in. And to get an improvement, you know, stem cells, theoretically, embryonic stem cells, when you inject them, are supposed to go to the damaged area and repair them. Um, there's a lot of work being done throughout the world with this, um, not only for eye, but you know, for for other, uh, you know, other parts, other organs in our body. We know that they can take and grow um, heart muscle. For people who have had heart attacks that have dysfunctional muscle, um, muscle will be much easier to grow um, than nerve fibers, but we're going in the right direction. And unfortunately, you know, we don't have, we're not there yet. Perhaps in two to three years, if I come back, we may have uh, some major breakthroughs that allow us to treat a lot of these conditions.
0: It's, It's really, it really gives us so much hope. There's so much hope out there. It's really great. Now, uh, Dr. Boyer, uh, a different disease that is not completely directly related to the retina is glaucoma, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we know that there's many people who do suffer from glaucoma, and in glaucoma, it's basically the damage to the optic nerve, so would you be able to describe glaucoma and the optic nerve, how the optic nerve fibers are damaged, and uh, what some of the newer research that we have read about that comes from Stanford.
1: So we have um, the the optic nerve connects the eye or the retina to the brain so that you think of it like you're taking um, and creating electrical impulses in the retina and they go down the optic nerve and then they go to the brain. Now if you have an optic nerve that's not functioning well for whatever reason, you could have the best-looking eye in the world. You're not going to be able to get the images or the electrical impulses to the brain to be able to be developed. Glaucoma is a, it's a very complicated disease. But simply stating, in order to have glaucoma, you need to have optic nerve damage, visual field damage, and um, you don't necessarily have to have a high pressure. Matter of fact, there are low tension glaucomas. There are different types of glaucomas that that occur. The most common is open-angle glaucoma, which occurs because the pressure gets h- higher than the, um, than the pressure that, uh, on, on the blood vessels, and it's a, the optic nerve is a soft spot if you want. So if you had a tire and you had a soft spot and you overinflated it, that soft spot would bulge. So if you overinflate your eye, if your eye is not able to take fluid out in a normal fashion it becomes harder and presses on the optic nerve. By pressing on the optic nerve, the little nerve fibers are damaged and you begin to lose portions of your visual field as the pressure continues to cause further damage. So there there are several things that are being done right now. Number one, it's obvious that if you can lower the pressure by medications, by either uh, giving medications topically or being able to inject medications, that would be a a, a very big help that would be able to control it. In Europe and and now in the United States, um, surgery is becoming much more um, common, and you can use what they call mini shunts. These mini shunts can lower the pressure by four or five points, which is significant, Um, and they're they're put in by uh, the anterior segment surgeons and glaucoma specialists. Um, So you can make a hole, basically, or have a way that the fluid can go out beside the normal um, channels that are blocked as you get older and you develop glaucoma. So, And and now they're working on um, neuroprotective drugs. So if you had a pressure that was extremely high but it didn't cause any damage, it's not really a problem. And they're working on on different drugs now that will be able to um, allow higher pressures without causing any damage to the uh, cells within the eye so the patients won't lose peripheral vision. Uh, One of the major problems glaucoma, without getting your eyes checked by an eye care professional, you would not know you have glaucoma. It doesn't cause pain. You don't usually pick up any visual field loss, but it's something that you can come in they have severe, severe changes, and your eye care professional will be the first one to tell you you're having a problem at all. So that's why it's important to get, you know, a, a standard eye checkups to make sure you don't have it. If you have a family history, you may want to do it at an earlier age. But it is important that um, that you do get tested because that's the only way you'll be able to pick it up.
0: Yes, I have seen so many times that. We have examined patients, and they didn't have any complaints of their vision, but one eye developed glaucoma before the other, and they they had no idea that they lost so much vision. So they they really do need to get their eyes checked. Now, one of the things that uh, I have recently learned about, actually from one of our members, uh, the audience today, uh, Mayor Takahara, he mentioned to me that some of the work that was being done at Stanford where for the first time they were able to identify damage to the ganglion cell in the optic nerve and with the use of high contrast along with some other types of biochemical changes, medications, they were able to get growth of the ganglion cell and it was able to identify the region of the brain that it needed uh, to be able to see, and it improved the vision of some of these mice. Uh, Are you familiar with this study?
1: No, but but glaucoma does affect the ganglion cells. It causes apoptosis or cell death to the ganglion cells, but I'm not familiar with with this specific um, research, so I, I wouldn't want to comment on it, to be honest.
0: You know, it's it's just really uh, very very scientific everything that's going on in terms of the research and I think all of these research dollars that so many of our listeners they they support during the vision walks and things uh, it it really is showing that there's a lot of gains and benefits and if you were to go into uh, an office such as Doctor Boyer's you'll see the improvement in all the new different type of equipment that's there so that they could identify and and see things at a much earlier stage there in life. Um, Dr. Boyer, do you have time to take any questions from our audience? Sure.
1: It would be a pleasure.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, If any of you have any questions about your eye condition and some of those types of treatments, if you would unmute your phone by pressing star 1 and we'll have time to take a couple of questions. Uh, so if you do have a question, press star one, and if you would just uh, announce your name, you could say your first name and your question. That'll be really great. Thank you. Yes, does anybody have a question? I do. This is Connie. Hi, Connie. Connie from Oklahoma. Yes. <laughs> Go right ahead. Thank you. Is there anything going on with cones and rod dystrophy?
1: Well, cone-rod dystrophy um, is uh, is being studied, I mean, the same way there, there are hereditary cone dystrophies and cone, some cone-rod dystrophies are actually variants of retinitis pigmentosa. So the answer is yes, they're, they're, they are looking at that very, very carefully. Um, the genetics are very important because, again, if you can find the genetic defect, then we have a better chance of being able to either use a CRISPR-Cas9 type of setup or be able to to um, get cells in that will be able to um, manufacture the protein or enzyme that you're deficient in?
0: Um, mine is inherited, and um, the onset wasn't until I was, like, 52. And at one time I went to a research center in Dallas, Texas, and they were studying silencing the gene, so that the disease wouldn't get worse, is that still being done?
1: Gene silencing is is was tried. Um, it's not being done very much at this point um, because there are other ways now. I think it's being replaced by you know, being able to take the gene actually out and putting a new gene in. So um, but you know there there are a lot of things that we've tried. I mean we we have probably twenty clinical trials that we're doing. Um, right now, and we're hoping that you know some will come to fruition. But at this moment, I don't know of anything that's being done for cone rod dystrophy. Okay. Well, thank you. You're welcome.
0: On a follow-up to that, Dr. Boyer, uh, would a person such as Connie or anybody who has a retinal disease that may be inherited, would it be wise for each of them to have genetic testing and Where do they go to get that type of genetic testing?
1: So genetic testing is a very controversial um, subject when it comes to macular degeneration. Um, But I think when you have cone rod dystrophy or RP or some other conditions that we feel are genetic in in, uh, nature, I think it's a good idea because they have been able to isolate certain genes um, and it gives me a better idea when the patient's coming to see me, if I'm not doing a study, let's say, on Stargardt's and I know someone else who's doing a study on this, then I have the ability to send them to the proper uh, place to, to be able to participate in some of these studies. But the problem is, is the cost. Most insurance companies do not want to pay for you know testing. You can get it done through the Carver laboratories, but it takes a long time. Um, we're doing a study right now in, you know, in our office. We, we are uh, characterizing all the patients with retinitis pigmentosis through a study that we're doing with the hope that we can identify patients that we would be able to treat in the future. So um, you can get it done. Your, your doctor, your retinal surgeon, or, or your ophthalmologist can actually get the testing done for you, but it is unfortunately usually not covered by insurance.
0: Do you know the uh, approximate cost? Is it?
1: It depends what your gene you're testing for. Oh, okay. So in other words, if you said I want to test for Conrad dystrophy, it's a different gene than for you know retinitis pigmentosa, maybe X-linked or something. So every every one of them, they'll do testing on them um, to try to determine w- what the gene problem is. The big problem is, you know, it, it, every one of them varies in cost. Thank
0: you. Let's see, does uh, anybody else out there have a question for Dr. Boyer?
1: This is Bernice, and I, I, Dr. Boyer, I would like to know, I, I was late getting on the call, did you discuss LCA in correlation with RP? Well, LCA is, is, you know, does have. Uh, I didn't discuss it specifically, but as you know, LCA does have a, a treatment, a gene therapy that has been shown to be effective. Um, there are a number of um, trials being done right now that seem to show a definite benefit. They've been able to show it in humans. Um, so, LCA is something that is being um, treated with um, subretinal injections. Um, and they are able to get improvements of vision. Uh, well, uh um, my husband has LCA and I know they they have identified at least 19 genes now but that's only about 85% of the people. Well, I, I and the ones that you know that they've been treating the young patients that they've been treating have done fairly well.
0: I heard recently though that 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 it was going backwards and so right.
1: I'm it wasn't maintained at a high level, but it wasn't returning back to the first um, as the baseline, but they did lose some of their effect.
0: Great. Thank you. Uh, next question. We have time for one more question. Does anybody else out there have a question? Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and bring up the last question, Dr. Boyer. Uh, which, what's the benefits of using sunglasses that filter ultraviolet on protecting the retina or perhaps slowing down the progression of macular degeneration or other vision loss from retinal disorders?
1: Well, ultraviolet uh, light has been implicated in, in the formation of cataracts, and um, ultraviolet light also um, has been implicated in causing free radical formation in um, Patients which can lead to a um, to toxins in the macular area that may precipitate um, patients going on to developing a macular degeneration um, so you know I think that it's good to have ultraviolet um, 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 you know, sunglasses that will block out the ultraviolet or um, but nobody has proven you know that um, by doing this early that you're going to change the course of uh, what's going on. But um, I think that certainly we know that light may play a big role for retinitis pigmentosa, so it may reduce um, some of the to- of the light that causes toxicity to the retina, but um, it's I don't think it's really well established at this point.
0: Well, that's really good to know because I have had some patients that they wear double pairs of sunglasses and the blackest sunglasses they can get because they feel that it, it may protect their eyes. And we explained to them that the ultraviolet is the damaging radiation, but you don't necessarily even have to have black sunglasses. We could filter out the ultraviolet light with clear lenses also. You know, Correct. So they they can move around more safely. But all of this information has been extremely Extremely helpful. You know, Dr. Boyer, you make this so easy. It almost sounds like we rehearsed this, but we didn't, did we?
1: <laughs> no, we didn't rehearse it, but thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: And and lastly, would you let anybody, everybody out there, know how that they could uh, contact your office should they want an appointment with you?
1: Um, well, they can call the main number. It's 213 483 8810. And there are 10 of us, and, and everybody has access to all the clinical trials and all the equipment. So I'm sure that uh, they'd be happy to see whatever patients we can uh, help.
0: Okay, great. Well, again, thank you, Dr. Boyer, and thank hey, Dr. you Billing. all for attending. Just want you to know that this uh, interview will be available. Online uh, for you to share it with your friends and other relatives or for you to listen to it again. It will be available at www.cclvi.org. That's www.cclvi.org. And we want to thank Dr. Joe Yerka from Airs LA for recording this. And at Airs LA, you could find this with other podcasts at www.airsla.org. Okay. Thank you, everybody, and happy holidays.